Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. Happy Sunday. Hope everybody had a good weekend. I did. It was kind of fun. Did some stuff. Ran errands. Cleaned house. Regular stuff. Hope you're all having a remainder of a good weekend. Anyway, um, welcome. My name is Charlotte. Let me do this here. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. And uh, I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California, and uh, we're 50 and 48 up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal need, we can help you out because we can get to you anywhere you're living. Kind of free, kind of kind of creepy. But anyway, um, we also are we also have branches in Nevada, Oregon, Washington, and Hawaii. How's that grab you? You Hawaii folks want something? I'll be glad to jump on the plane and go out there. Anyway. <laughs> Well, anyway, today uh, we're going to read from the haunting and legend of Lizzie Borden. We've gone through the trial because last not last week I went ahead and kept reading so that we could be through the trial because I knew if I stopped reading, you guys were going to have a fit. You know, it's kind of like leaving everybody those cliffhangers they have on TV, right? So I decided to continue reading. So I ended up reading for an hour and a half to make sure that we got through uh, Lizzie's trial. Let me do this real quick. Okay. And um, it was really rather interesting. So now we get to see her afterlife. What happened after she went through the trial. Now what I'd like to find out in the chat today, if you guys are going to, if you guys want to get involved with all this, I want your thoughts on whether you think Lizzie did it. After hearing all the book and hearing all the testimony and, you know, back and forth and, and kind of hearing what, you know, what the author thought happened. I want to know what you think happened. Is Lizzie, you know, was Lizzie guilty or innocent? Could it have been somebody else? Could, could it have been Bridget that actually did the deed? Okay, so that's that's what I want to find out. So if you want to be active in the chat room, I'll be checking, you know, every once in a while, but I'll be looking up at the chat room to see what you guys, i got to change those updates and not make noises. I'll be checking to see what you guys think of, you know, of, of, of Lizzie. Let me make sure I have this. Okay. You know, what What you think of Lizzie's outcome, whether she should have been convicted or not. You know, in a way, you know, looking at this, like, I, like I've been reading it, she looks pretty guilty to me. But, you know, like everything else, except for interpretation. So, yeah, so I'd, I'd like to see what you guys think. All right, so uh, let me know in the chat room. Don't be afraid to chat. It's all good. I'm not going to yell at anybody or anything like that. Opinion, 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 right? I also want to announce I'm going to be teaching a couple psychic development classes here. It's going to be next Saturday, 5 p.m. Pacific. It's going to be the psychic, the first level psychic development class where I teach you how to uh, meditate, go to your spirit world, see your spirit animals, see your spirit guides, talk to your spirit guides, get messages, things like that, and then you're able to come back into your body. It helps because if you're if you're a newbie, if you're, if you're a budding psychic. Sometimes you open the door too wide, and it's not just good stuff that can come through. Negativity will come through as well. So this teaches you how to open and close that door, and get to the point where you're opening and closing that door really quickly. Plus, I do some exercises. No, not that kind. I'm like the round table guy. But, you know, we, we do some exercises during the class, <clears throat> excuse me, for you to practice. You know, and when you first start out, you might not do very well. But then towards the end of the class, you will start scoring. You know, it's, it's kind of like we kind of play concentration. Where I send you, met, where I send you images. Okay, and that's how we do it. And to, to get your mind going well. The more you meditate, the more you're open to these images I'm sending. So if you want to join that class, go over and join the California Haunts Meetup page. It's California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. There's no charge for it, um, but that's where I announce all, all my classes primarily. And that's, again, that's going to be Saturday, September 3rd at 5 p.m. Then right back behind that, on the, on the 10th now, the following Saturday, there was a more advanced psychic development class that, come, that, that launches off of the first one once you take it. Because, you know, once you get to the point where you're able to use your abilities to open and close that psychic door, what abilities do you have? Are you clairsentient, clairaudient? What abilities are there? And that's what we look at in the second, second development class. We go over each one of those things with you guys. 
and you can <clears throat> kind of kind of utilize them with more exercises during the class to realize which one you're good at because so there are psychics that are really gifted that that, that can that can do a majority of that stuff but most of the time psychics you know mediums and psychics can do one or two things you know and they do it really well so this is the way to find out too but you, in order to take that class you have to have gone through psychic development class one before you get the psychic development class two okay so anyway you can, like i said you can sign up for that over at the california haunts paranormal investigation team meetup and there's no, like i said there's no charge to sign up it's just like a club thing it's like it's like facebook only that's where the main announcements goes through you know as far as classes and stuff for california haunts Okay, okay. Well, let me get this thing started up. Like I said, I always say, over here, I have an old tablet, so it takes a few minutes. So we can see what happened with Lizzie after the trial. As I make lots of noise doing this. Okay. Say hello to antiquated tablet. Say hello, antiquated tablet. There we go. Samsung Galaxy Note 8. Say hello to antiquated tablet. Mom Bell, right? <laughs> so now it's going to get interesting because the book is going to continue through, you know, like I said, what happened to Lizzie after the trial. She's also going to buy another house. Or move into another place in i think fall river so from my understanding is <clears throat> not only because they're, they're going to talk about the go the activity in that you know the murder house you know that boarding house but what else it's talked about in here is there in the new house she buys i guess there's also acti activity that goes on there as well so i believe the book covers that so let me get in here that's why it's called the history and haunting of lizzie borden right but you'd think after you kill people, if she did do it, you know, you'd think that you'd either have a lot of remorse or maybe they would come back to haunt you because of the trauma in the house. Because the house holds, the walls and stuff hold energy, right? Especially wooden houses back then. So you'd think that they might come back and haunt her. I'm just saying. So we're going to find out here, see what's going on with Lizzie Borden. So I'm going to read for about an hour today and, uh, if I, if, if I might go beyond that, <clears throat> it just depends because I, I want to get to a spot where, um, you know, where, where I can have like a header on there so I know where to start up next week. <clears throat> Excuse me. I love when you do this. Don't do this to me. Okay. Let's try it again. Be nice. Like I said, it's an antiquated thing. I can't even play video games on any games on here anymore because it's all it's all full of memory and it's not coming up today. Come on, you can do it. Do this for me. Don't do don't, don't do this crap. So let's see what's happening. Maybe to take the afternoon off. I don't know. Okay, swipe screen. Don't let me unlock either. Oh, there we go. <clears throat> okay, here we are topic of this section is home sweet home while lizzie had told emma to take her straight home the sisters were taken instead to the residence of Char the residence of charles j holmes he and his daughter annie accompanied lizzie and emma and helped them navigate the knots of people who were everywhere at the holmes post on at the holmes house on pine street lizzie's friends gathered to congratulate her including the women from the marion group and welcome her back to Fall River. The loneliness she had experienced for 10 long months melted away as she saw the faintest glimmer of a happy future, a future without Abby, without fear of financial uncertainty, and one where she would be welcomed into the society she craved. Hadn't they all cheered for her in New Bedford when she was found innocent? The fine ladies with their expensive gowns and richly adorned hats had taken her hand in their glove grafts enjoying her happiness. It had all been worth it. Lizzie and Emma spent the night at the homes, at the Holmeses, sequestered from the media and crowds, sure to be holding vigil outside the walls of 92 Second Street. Lizzie placed her head upon the feathered pillow, and for the first time in over a year, she slept with no fear of the dawn. 
As the sunlight streamed in through the lace curtains of the Holmes guest room, she rose to finally return home. The paper stated that she did that she did just that at 9.49 a.m. According to the Fall River Daily Evening News, Lizzie had returned to her household duties in her Fall River home and hopes for nothing so strongly than that she may be forgotten by the newspapers and left in peace by the curious. Mrs. Mary A. Livermore said of her friend that the poor girl feels herself under surveillance even now, in spite of the fact she had been liberated by the courts. All about the Borden property, individuals peered over the fence and from every vantage point on the ground to catch a glimpse of her, until the outlandish behavior became maddening. There was still some unfinished business concerning the bodies of Andrew and Abby Borden. They were buried, yes, but without their heads. In accordance with Lizzie and Emma's wishes, Mr. Andrew Jennings, who was still their legal representative, addressed Mr. Jose Knowlton and made a request. Based on that, Mr. Knowlton wrote to Dr. Dolan, Dear Sir, Mr. Jennings insists that the skulls of Andrew and Abby Borden be returned to his clients. As there is no pending case and they were held for evidence only, I see no reason why they should not be returned. Jose Knowlton, July 14, 1893. The sisters may have contacted Undertaker James Windward to carry out the proper burial of the skulls. It was handled in the most secret of undertakings. As for once, the newspapers did not emblazon the event across their pages. While no evidence of the burial was documented at the time, some recent events may prove the victims' heads were rejoined with their caskets. Modern Skullduggery The Sun Journal from Lewiston, Maine, wrote on Wednesday, August 5, 1892, that James Stars, a professor at George Washington University, made a surprising statement during the 100-year anniversary of the, of the butchery. I guess 1992, I'm sorry. I thought it was 1892. So 1992. Made a surprising statement during the 100-year anniversary of the butcher of Andrew and Abby Borden. He stated that six months prior, he had scanned the two graves of the murdered couple with a radar probe in search of the skulls. His findings? I am sure. I, I am as sure as science will allow that the skulls are buried at Oak Grove Cemetery in Fall River, about three feet above the rest of the remains of the Bordens, Stars claimed. He used charts to show some anomalies in the soil. Once word got out about his skullduggery, rel skullduggery, relatives of the Borden family let it be known that his actions would not be tolerated and any further investigation on his behalf be halted. A short trip to Newport. Lizzie and Emma, finding the crowds and notoriety hard to handle after such a grueling ordeal, accepted the invitation of some dear friends to come to Newport and recuperate. William K. Covell and family welcomed the sisters and encouraged them to relax, away from the curious gaze of the sensation seekers. As always, the reporters were there to document Lizzie's every move. The New Bedford Evening Journal, July 5, 1893. Lizzie, with the daughter of Mr. Holmes, went for a week's outing to Newport a fortnight ago, very quietly, so that the fact of her going was scarcely known. The two young people spent the days in resting and riding, and the change of scenery and relief from persistent surveillance was greatly appreciated. The Newport Mercury reported on July 8th, Mrs. Lizzie A. and Emma L. Borden have returned from a week's visit to Newport. Lizzie and Emma may have been invited to the Covilles to celebrate the 4th of July. The first fireworks in America were in 1777 on July 4th, just one year after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and were instigated every year since. As the bombs bursting in the air rattled the seaside town of Newport, did Lizzie celebrate her own recently found independence with family and friends? A two-week vacation from Kara's was just what she and Emma needed. Yet, in the end, the house on 2nd Street, with, with, with its memories, missing sofa, newly carpeted guest chamber and sitting room, were waiting for her. The sisters secretly hoped the crowds were tired of, excuse me, were tired of watching their windows and doors in hopes of seeing a member of the family. John Morse had gone home to Iowa, and Bridget was beginning a new life, away from the board and tension of limelight. The blood-spattered walls and the police scrutiny. The all-seeing eye. Wherever Lizzie went, her actions were commented on. Her dear friend Charles J. Holmes tried to run interference for her. 
He told the multitudes that were on the lookout for her that he did not expect she would be seen at church, a concert, or a public gathering for many weeks to come. She does not wish to intrude in public under the present circumstances. In the weeks following Lizzie's acquittal, the crowd staked out the Central Congregational Church on Rock Street in hopes of seeing her. Many may not have known she was away at Newport. It did not stop the vicious gossip. Not at church, the headline read. Did not see her. And on it went. Yet, when she finally did appear within the church doorway on July 23rd, escorted by Dr. Seabury Brown and Charles, Hol Charles J. Holmes, the pendulum of scandal swung the other way. Fall River Daily Herald, Monday, July 24th, 1893. Miss Lizzie Borden attended morning and evening services at the Central Congregational Church yesterday. Another paper was quoted as saying, her appearance was a surprise to most of the congregation. One sharp tongue was quoted as saying, the town was all astir Sunday because Lizzie Borden went to church. I don't see why it should bother people so, for if, she's, for if she is guilty, is not church the best place for her? The surprise of the first day back at church was probably Lizzie's. After the accolades and well wishes of the public and at the, at the not guilty announcement, she may have expected a warm greeting from her fellow parishioners. What she found was a section of empty seats surrounding her family's pew, number 22. Although their pews were paid for, their family's name engraved upon small gold plaques, the religious and pious, con and pious con congregation distanced themselves from her. The message it sent was more indelible than any newspaper headline. Like dominoes falling one right, one at right after the other, Lizzie's friends fell away. Women who had worked with her in many charitable endeavors silently, silently removed themselves from her realm. Some who had written to her in jail now ignored her attempts to reach out to them in social settings. The loss of Ellis Russell had been great, although Lizzie's anger felt over her betrayal burned hotter. With her had gone Elizabeth Johnston, one of her dear friends from from the Marion Circle. She stopped her attendance at the Christian Endeavor Society as the members there cut her. Problems with the Young Women's Temperance Union caused their final removal from the upper floor of the Andrew J. Borden building where they had been paying $120 in rent. Lizzie, once acting as secretary of that organization and once the recipient of their support during her trials, was suddenly cut by them. Whether it was their idea or hers, they removed they removed to another location. One of the reasons for the committee's decision to move was that Charles C. Cook, Mr. Borden's, and now the sister's property manager, had refused to make some repairs the union asked for, as the property had not yet been put into the sister's name, and he did not want to bother Emma at this time. For whatever reason, the, 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 the YWTU moved away, as did their friendship to Lizzie. For Fall River, the verdict of not guilty may have been published but there had been no murderer arrested to take her place in the crimes. The papers had railed against Judge Dewey's bias charge to the jury, causing many to believe Lizzie skated by on, a, on the squeaky wheels of an unjust judicial mandate. She was, literally, in a no-man's land, acquitted, but still very much under the umbrella of suspicion in the public's mind. The Bordens of the Spindle City were ashamed and angered that their birthright had been tainted by this woman who had been an outsider living in the wrong part of town. Emma merely picked up the pieces as she always did. Excuse me a second. Putting it in print. Barely two months after the Superior Court trial ended, a book hit the stands that would cause, sensa that would cause a sensation throughout the small town. Edwin Porter, that tenacious reporter from the Fall River Police Department, put his copious notes and newspaper reporting into one damning book called The Fall River Tragedy. Here it was, in permanent black and white, the telling of the Borden murders, complete with leaked testimony from the inquest, many believing Officer Harrington as the mouthpiece. The book left no doubt as to Porter's belief that Lizzie had wielded the hatchet. Attorney Jennings flew into action to put a stop to the book before its release, sending notices to both Porter and the publishing house of John D. Monroe. He threatened that any false statement or colorable description would be prosecuted. No photos of Andrew J. Borden, his daughters, John V. Morris, or any of the defense attorneys would be allowed. Porter and Monroe lawyered up. They went ahead with crime scene photos and other black and whites, the first of their kind to be seen in print as opposed to hand-drawn illustrations. They did steer clear of printing Lizzie, Emma, and John's likeness. Abby Borden and Bridget's photographs were not mentioned in 
in, in Jennings' warning, and were fair game. The book was published and ready for sale on August 10, 1893. Sadly, it found its way into the libraries of the elite on the hill and into the hands of Andrew Jennings, Mrs. George S. Brigham, Anna, and Carrie Borden, and others who were anxious to see what damage had been done for the asking price of $1.50. Lizzie's untold story was laid out for the world to see. In Olive Branch, the legal question of who died first, Andrew or Abby, had come home to roost as the Borden sisters went about handling the paperwork of their inheritance. Abby had died in interstate, leaving no will, as had her husband. Therefore, when Abby died first, anything in her name was automatically transferred to her husband's estate. When Andrew died, his heirs became sole owners of all of it. So, Abby's real estate holding of one, in, one undivided half of the house and land at number 45 4th Street, valued at 2000 and her personal assets valued at $1,716.05, went to Lizzie and Emma, and Abby's family received nothing. The sisters decided to transfer Abby's estate to her, to her heirs, perhaps partly to head off any more salacious publicity and to move on with their lives. The New York Times, under their column called Personal Gossip, wrote, Miss Lizzie and Emma Borden have voluntarily transferred, it is, transferred, it is said, about 4000 worth of property which had belonged to their murdered stepmother to Mrs. George W. Whitehead of Fall River and Mrs. George B. Fish of Hartford, Connecticut, who were sisters of Mrs. Borden. Abby's relatives were satisfied with the settlement, and Emma and Lizzie closed the door on that chapter of their lives. On January 22, 1894, Lizzie and Emma submitted the first and final account of Andrew J. Borden's estate, valued at between $300,000 and $500,000. In today's dollars, it amounted to close to, to close to $14 million. The Borden ladies were wealthy and able to do as they pleased. And what they wanted most, especially Lizzie, was to move away from the tainted house. And up to Fall River's echelon of wealth and power, the hill. A new address, Chapter 36. Emma and Lizzie Borden lived under the same roof all their lives. Emma's attendance at school, Lizzie's grand tour of Europe, and her incarceration were the only times the sisters were separated, barring a few short vacations. In Victoria, New England, spinsters and unmarried sisters living together was practically the norm. Spinster school teachers were, excuse me, spinster school teachers also were there, and several of Lizzie's friends filled those positions. Every family had made aunts, and many women preferred a life without the domineering hand of the head of the house. Subservience within the pristine walls of well-ordered households was alive and well in the 1890s. But suffragettes were moving ever closer through the brush as they gained, as they gained momentum for women's rights. In the television movie The Legend of Lizzie Borden, 1975, the actress playing Hosea Knowlton's wife says to him, you have, no, you have no idea how unbearably heavy these skirts can be at times. Her reference was to the subservient role women played in the Gilded Age, not to the weight of the fabric. Shopping for a home. Without hesitation, the Borden sisters took Charles Cook in hand and pointed him to the Fall Rivers Hill area, Rock Street. Once the epicenter of the lush mansion enclave had been, had been unsurped by Highland Avenue as a place to own a home. While Lizzie and Emma did, a view, did view a home on Rock Street, the houses they migrated toward were not on a grand scale, compared to many jaw-dropping ed edifices sprawling across manicured lawns. One of the first homes the two sisters visited was 99 Rock Street. It belonged to William H. Chase, a successful dealer in leather goods for the Union Belt Company. The Bordens made him an offer of $15,000 for the house, but he turned them down, stating he had another offer made to him prior to their arrival. It was basically under contract. Now, whether that was true or not, the sisters moved on. Next on the list was the home of a locally famous man by the name of Henry W. Peabody. Mr. Peabody was a member of the Salem, Massachusetts Peabodies, who were known far and wide for their wealth and position. You're a Peabody or you're a nobody, was a well-known mantra. The Peabody Essex Museum in Salem is named for them, as, as is a mansion in that city. Peabody, Massachusetts, a nearby town to Salem, stands as testament to the family renown. To the door of 12 Underwood Street on July 5, 1893, Lizzie and Emma knocked and were afforded a tour of the house. Mrs. Peabody, 
and he managed a Brayton, a sister to Elizabeth A. Brayton, one of Lizzie's fellow passengers, on the RMF Scythia on her return trip from Europe in 1890. Lizzie must have looked at Lizzie must have looked at the rich furnishings and, and small accoutrements with a voyeuristic eye. She was finally within the walls of a Brayton, perhaps a home that had at one time hosted a party to which she was not invited. Nanny was a member of the Troy Book Club and probably knew Emma from that association. For whatever reason, the sisters kept looking. The largest home Lizzie and Emma considered was a breathtaking Italian Italian ornate marble at 85 High Street, owned by Julius P. Prentice, treasurer for the Fall River Board and Trade. The home was originally built for Charles L. Show, whose daughter Ellen had also traveled with Lizzie to Europe. Once again, Lizzie ran her gloved hand over the marble and glass of homes to which she had never gained access. The sisters later viewed a home for sale just a few doors down from the Prentice House at 62 High Street. High Street. The large two and one half story Queen Anne was, a, was the dwelling place of another Fall River tragedy. The home's owner, 50, hang on, the home's owner, there we go, okay, 60 year old Alfred D. Butterworth, a traveling agent for the Hargrave Silk Company in Fall River, hanged himself on April 14, 1892. His body hanging from a tree limb in a wooded area of north of northeast Fall River was seen by Mr. Joseph B. Peacock, who was outside strolling. He ran to the police station to report his sighting. In an ironic twist, it was Officer Mullally, the same policeman who had found the handle of his hatchet, who was called to look into it. Mr. Butterworth's death was a mystery, as he was known to be a happy man with a loving family and beautiful home. No one knew why he suddenly chose to climb a tree in his gray suit and light, and light overcoat and release his hold, allowing the noose to take his life. The home's tragic past made it an odd choice for the board and sisters' consideration. Meanwhile, back on 2nd Street, the interest in the murder house was just as prevalent as ever. People climbed the fences, tried to get into the barn, and did their own recon through the property. Charles C. Cook was finally told by the sisters to put up a sign out front of the house that read, Trespassing on these premises is strictly forbidden by the owners. Alas, it was akin to putting up an X marks the spot. Number 92 was now as conspicuously stamped as you are here. 7 French Street It was not lost on Lizzie and Emma Borden that gossip and headlines followed their every move. Emma hoped the sensationalism would die down as time passed and other tantalizing bits of news found their way into ink. But the trial had only ended a few weeks earlier. The obvious dislike of the Borden women, shown by some of the people they were hoping to call neighbors, was harder to ignore. Many on High Street were not pleased when the sisters made an offer on the infamous Butterworth house. After much haggling over the price, Lizzie and Emma moved on, and the money denizens of that street breathed a sigh of relief. The home of Charles Marion Allen at 7 French Street next caught their eye. It was only a few yards from Highland Avenue, that desirable mansion-lined street where the who's who sipped tea and passed judgment on those outside of their social realm. Ironically, Charles Allen and Andrew J. Borden shared the same great-great-grandfather, John Borden, making the two men distant cousins. This may have appealed to the sisters, and they made an offer. In July 1893, the sale was, was procured through G.M. Haffords and Company with the price set at $13,000. The transaction was finalized on August 10, 1893. Lizzie had finally gotten what she always wanted, a house on the hill. Surely, now she would be accepted and afforded all the prestige and clout the board name afforded for through her lineage. Charles Allen, ironically, became the owner of the Chase home, the one on Rock Street the sisters had been on and been denied, after he bought it from William W. Stewart, who had purchased and owned the house for only two months. Had it been a clandestine way, block the Borden ladies from ownership? Or had Stewart merely had other circumstances arise to warrant his quick sale? The Allens needed three weeks to move out. Lizzie and Emma busied themselves with packing and buying new furniture to supplement the few pieces they would retain from the old place. The newspapers happily reported the sale of the French Street house. And the Hill got its first taste of life living near the infamous Lizzie Borden. People began showing up, strolling by the house, and finding myriad excuses as to how they just happened to be in the area. The area newspapers, nipping at Lizzie's heels like the tenacious bulldog, followed her everywhere. 
news feeds went out far and wide, including one post in the New York Post regarding the sisters' movements, which read, Both are seen on the streets almost daily. It was known that the sisters were actively visiting various homes on the hill, and the hopes of living there. As always, Lizzie's attire was mentioned. Many commented on the fact that she still refused to be seen in mourning black. Emma, it was mentioned, was always wearing black, as a nod to her departed father. It would appear Lizzie's thumbing of her nose at, other, at others' expectations of her behavior had not changed. Moving Day September came to Fall River. A smattering of autumn colors for which New England is famous began making their debut. Winds from the ocean swept across the face of Massachusetts, spiraling dead leaves to the ground. Lizzie Borden watched the dance of nature from her second-floor bedroom window at 92 Second Street as a half-moon shone down on the changing landscape. The pear trees were shedding their leaves, exposing the secrets they had hidden for over a year. Lizzie pushed the lace, lace curtain aside a little farther and pressed her face to the window. A shard of moonlight shot off a metal ridge pole as it ran the length of the roof of Crow's barn. Her heart skipped a beat, and then she remembered. The hatchet had been found a few months ago. It was gone. The wind moved through the bare pear tree limbs that pointed with skeletal fingers towards the place where the abandoned murder weapon had lain. Taking a deep breath, Lizzie turned to face the stacks of books, packed trunks, and stuffed satchels littering her room. Emma kept coming in to ask, Do you think we should keep this, or what should we do with the old cookware? Kind of questions. The sisters were busy packing, either to begin a new life, eager to begin a new life on French Street. At every turn of the corner at their old home, ghosts rose up to block their way. The memories were thick, some wonderful, most stained by tension. Abby's relatives had come and taken away her things, and taken away her things. The sisters had to deal with their fathers, and it had not been easy. Finally, moving day came. A crowd assembled outside the house on 2nd Street to watch with maudlin curiosity as the movers brought out each piece of furniture and carefully packed trunk. The spectators may have been disappointed to find sheets and blankets covering most things. Lizzie especially refused them the right to peer at their personal belongings. On September 6, 1893, the wagon loads of Lizzie and Emma's belongings pulled up in front of 7 French Street. The window curtains of neighboring houses were, were cautiously pulled aside as the Swifts and Davenports peered out at the new kids on the block. The movers carried the covered furnishings and packed bundles into the house, with both Lizzie and Emma rapidly pointing out the location for each large piece. Constantly reminding the men to mine the polished wood floors, the house began to fill with items brought from the brought from the Borden home. Next were shopping trips to buy new pieces of art for the walls, linens, monogram silverware, and towels for the ball and cloth of bathtub. A bathtub. Perhaps of all the modern amenities that the Bordens found awaiting them in a home scarcely four years old was a modern bathroom. There would be no more hip baths in front of the stove on Sunday morning, pouring hot water from a tea kettle into a metal tub. They ran their fingers over the porcelain surface of the sides, turned the faucets on and off, luxuriating in the feeling of hot running water. The kitchen was fitted with all the newest equipment. While home-use refrigerators would not hit the market until 1913, the house on French Street had a modern icebox with large compartments and a stylish front. There was even a small door behind it where the ice man could deliver the ice from outside without bothering the resident. As the movers placed the last trunk inside the front hall and received their pay and departed, there came that strange feeling one always had when the rush and stress of packing and moving is over, and you stand inside the strange walls of someone else's home. Lizzie and Emma paused in their scurrying and stood inside the main hall, light playing through the stained glass window and above the landing and looked at each other, a mixture of emotions playing across their faces. The look said, this is ours? We live here now? This is who we are? And with that, they turned to look at their shiny new home and began to unpack. Back on 2nd Street, the shadows played across the austere boards of the drab green siding and even darker drab green gem. The shutters to the windows had all been closed, the house looking as if it was now an eternal slumber. When the pears rot next summer, who would harvest them? Would the worn cellar steps echo another Maggie's footsteps as she labored beneath a, a bed of cold, uh, 
I'm sorry, as she <laughs> labored beneath a hod of coal and a bundle of wood for the stove. And all those locks, would the keys be needed now as they had been, as they had been before? The house remained closed up. As soon as the sisters caught their breath, they ordered it remodeled, spinning back the hands of time and returning it to a two-family dwelling. By October 1893, it was ready, and the two new renters, Lewis L. Hall and Willard, P. And Willard B. Peckham, and their families moved in. A newspaper remarked upon it, saying, Heads of two families do business within two blocks of, of the gloomy house, and they smile derisively when their customers question them about, the, about ghosts inside Seven French Street. The original home Emma and Lizzie purchased on French Street had an open front porch, or piazza, as it was called in that area, in that era. The steps from the sidewalk leading up to two simple doors of oak. I'm sorry, the steps from the sidewalk leading up to two simple doors of oak. Lizzie has the initial B engraved over the keyhole of the front door lock. The entry into the home was spacious, with a set of stairs to the west, lit by stained glass windows. A built-in hallway bench nestled against the steps and hosted a horsehair cushion that is now found in the north room of the second floor above the back porch. If one sat on the bench and looked up, you could see through the third floor stairwell. The entry floor was parquet in beautiful golden hues. An ornate fireplace sat across from the stairs, giving the area a formal and yet welcoming feeling. The Parlor at Maple Croft. The parlor at 7 French Street is twice the size as the one in the Second Street home. Filled with light from the windows on two sides of the room, its rich William Morris wallpaper, which is in hunter green with pastel blue and rose flowers, and lush area rugs set off the natural wood floors to perfection. A double inlay of darker wood rims the floors, making the room an enclave of its own. Balloon-backed chairs, sofas, tables, and display cabinets sat in inviting visionettes about the parlor, while red velvet curtains puddled on the floor. A baby grand piano holds court in one corner of the room, while a detailed mantle fireplace rests along the wall flanking the entry. Here the sisters entertained, and here, in one brief golden moment, the famous actress Nance O'Neill and her troupe laughed and drank in, into the wee hours of the, mor of the morning with Lizzie playing the, the delighted hostess. The south side of the parlor has windows facing the street, and through the lacy shears one can see the traffic as it slows to peer, peer in one, and to peer in wonder at the, at the infamous home of Lizzie Borden. The author was fortunate enough to spend two nights at Maplecroft during the writing of this book and witness the curious who still travel past and stop and stare even today. It was a room filled with beauty and art, but it may have left the owners feeling somewhat vulnerable to the invasiveness of French Street and its voyeurs. Let me see, let's make sure I don't, let's see. The dining room at Maplecroft. The dining room at Maplecroft, nestled in a bay window setting, is lovely. The arched entry into the room can be seen upon entering the front door. The wallpaper in the room is original to the house and may have been selected by Emma and Lizzie themselves. They were, only, they were only the second owners of the home and it had been built only four years before they took ownership. The paper is in a Latisse work motif, motif with cornflower blue background and pastel fruit and floral clusters. It adds a softness to the dark molding and ceiling, and ceiling beams that encase a soft brush linen lining. It was popular in the 1800s to place linen over the over ceiling plaster that was known to crack. It was a cost-effective way to maintain an elegant look without constant plaster refurbishment. The Kitchen and Pantry To the left of the dining room and fireplace is a door leading into a large pantry where the icebox delivery door was found. It also houses a radiator, which would be a strange thing to have next to an icebox, hinting that the room may have become something else, perhaps a dinette. When a modern refrigerator replaced the icebox and was located in the kitchen proper. The windows of the pantry overlooked the side yard and the swift house to the west. The kitchen at Maplecroft is airy and filled with sunlight. A high white tin ceiling reflects the light and gives the room a spacious feeling. 
the current owner, Christy Bates, has chosen to refinish it in the period Lizzie enjoyed in her later years, the 1920s. Here we get a wonderful glimpse of life in the Roaring Twenties, when new modes of modernized kitchen equipment were in vogue. From a refrigerator to the one-piece sink and modern stove, the room was full-functioning. A large table sat in the center, perfect for food preparation and morning co- or morning coffee. The walls were painted in a soft buttermilk gold color. Two doors lead to the cellar and out the back porch, with steps going down the porch and garage, respectively. Second floor bedrooms. Lizzie and Emma Borden had something in their new home they must have reveled in. Hallways. No more interconnecting rooms and lack of privacy. Here they found wide hallways with walls covered in soft, ecru wallpaper with polished wood floors, hallway runners, and a radiator that covered one entire wall. There were doors separating the sleeping quarters from the rest of the second floor and the flat in the back stairway, complete with locks. At the top of the front entry stairs, to the right, is a large room that extends the entire length of the front of the house. It is thought to have been the library and sitting room for the Borden sisters. The myriad windows in the room, looking east, north, and west, made a perfect setting for relaxing, and if one were so inclined to spy on your neighbors from, from three advantage points, the south-facing window overlooked the lake house across the street, the east window overlooked the Kenny house, and from the window seat area, one could see both the Braytons on the corner and the Swift house next door. The room also boasted a fake fireplace. It is interesting that this is not a functional piece and may have been installed to give the room a feeling of, of gentility and warmth. It has a lovely carved verse upon the front piece that has given Lizzie scholars something to interpret for years. And here it is. In old time friends and twilight plays and starry nights and sunny days come trooping up the misty ways when my fire burns low. While the poem may have come from one of Lizzie's favorite books of poetry, if she had it custom made, perhaps there is a hidden meaning to the words old-time friends in Twilight Plays. This may have referred to her time with Nance O'Neill, the actress whose many plays Lizzie attended. Story Nights might refer to Vincent Van Gogh's famous painting that was created in 1889, shortly before the Borden girls bought the home, and only one year before Lizzie's tour of Europe. The old painting may have been a favorite of Lizzie's, who adored art and may have seen the masterpiece hanging in a European museum. The rest of the verse shows her loneliness and the yearning for the past when memories smolder like a fire burning low. To the left of the library on the second floor landing is a double room. It's a double room suite divided by a set of mullioned glass doors. The southernmost room boasts a bay window with views of the east which would have been facing the Kenny house. During Lizzie's residence, the middle window housed a jewel-toned stained glass pane. A closet with dress hooks and ha- is housed on, in this room, with a door leading out to the stair- stairway landing. Through the double doors at the north of this room was the second half of the suite. This portion housed an ornate fireplace with glazed tile and, and mottled shades of blue, green, and gold, and a decorative brass and iron grate. The Fall River, who's to say, okay. A sentimental verse graced the fireplace mantle and may have hearkened to Lizzie's visit to Scotland during the Grand Tour or to her old English lineage. At home in my iron country. My iron country referred to one's homeland, a place of comfort and, if you will, ownership. This may have been Lizzie's bedroom, and the verse was a personal one for her. At last, she had her own home, her own domain. She was at Haim, which is home, in her own country. This room also emulates the bedroom, her bedroom on 2nd Street. It too housed a fireplace and an alcove, which she turned into a private toiletry area. The Maplecroft alcove is, is home to built-in drawers, which would have held gloves, handkerchiefs, undergarments, and hosiery, along with other personal items. The wallpaper is a deep blue with sprays of red, blue, gold, and green foliage. A connecting room with a closet and bay windows could have held her lounge, writing desk, and a bookcase. She may have basically copied her setup from the old place, albeit a grander scale. 
Across the hall from Lizzie's suite was Emma's bedroom. It is a large and airy room, its window facing west. As the sisters grew older, they spent more and more time apart, traveling on their own with friends, or in Lizzie's case, a paid companion. The room is decorated to reflect Emma's newfound love of travel. The wallpaper in Emma's room is of a much lighter feeling than the dark blues of Lizzie's. The area has a fresh appeal with a sense of lightness, something the older warden sister was possibly desperately trying to find in her life. The bed is in the raised colonial style with a footstool to assist her as she climbed into bed. Area rugs of, of, of collaborating motif are placed around the room. Coming from Emma's room and traveling to the north along the second floor hallway, one passes through a doorway that could have locked off the bathroom area from the bedrooms. The bathroom was shown earlier with the small hexagon tile floor and art mildew trim. Coming from Emma's room and traveling to the north along the second floor hallway, one passes through a doorway that could have locked off the bathroom area from the bedrooms. The bathroom, again, was shown earlier. Oh my god, I went through the same thing. I'm so sorry. The captions, the real quick correction, you guys, the captions and the type on here are the same size, so I'm trying to get sort through them, so bear with me. The, seat sits, sits, the sink sits upon legs and was a fashion to the Gilded Age. The mirror and fixtures are original. Lizzie added a back porch in 1909, four years after Emma departed. Above it, she created a long room emulating the front library, emulating the front library and sitting area, but vastly different in decor. This room was almost void of decoration or enhancement. There was no wood molding, only a wallpaper border in its place. The exposed brick fireplace, so simple and stark, seems jarring compared to the rest of the house. Perhaps at one time it sported an ornate front piece that was carried away sometime over the years. Today, a closet has been turned into a private bath area, and maybe this new addition was designed to move her farther and farther away from the front of the house where strangers constantly stopped and ogled her home, hoping for a glimpse of her. The room overlooks the back of the property and would have been much quieter, safer from backfiring cars, whores, and pedestrians. This room may have doubled as a sitting room and library just as it did in the front of the house. It is also rumored that Lizzie used it as a bedroom in summer months and may have passed away here. Just outside the door to the room is the back staircase to the kitchen, making it easier for a maid to bring food to the room in Lizzie's later years or for her to reach the back porch area without going through the front of the house. She was using a cane later in life, and getting around was becoming more cumbersome. The rear porch. Lizzie's need to sit quietly among the birds and squirrels, far from the prying eyes of French Street, may have prompted the addition of a large veranda with a wide river, river rock wall on one end. It commanded the full length of the back side of the house. Its rounded curve on one end gave it an elegant, softer feeling with its turned spindles and low railing. Here, near the stone wall, Lizzie could sit in her rocker, secreted away from the voyeurism, from, from the voyeuristic gaze of neighbors in traffic. With her Boston Terrier in her lap, a book in her hand, she spent many tranquil moments here. Outside the second floor addition is a funny little step that was put in when the room was created. It sits off by itself away from the back stairway, instead of meshing with the landing. It is almost as if Lizzie was, Lizzie was cutting costs with the new wing, including the stairs. Perhaps the abhorrence of spending unnecessary money on a house's amenities was a trait she inherited from her father. This is the only part of the house Lizzie has a hand in building. Third floor. Another set of steps leads from the second floor floor back staircase to the third floor where the servants slept. Here the maids and coachmen each had their own room with a small toilet room for their use. A bathtub, toilet, and water tank were in the cellar, a far more luxurious setting than Bridget was afforded. The first room to the left of the third floor back stairs is a large room facing east. It may have housed two beds. It, it has a two dormer it has, it has two dormer windows, a closet and a door leading to the third floor, landing in the front stairs. This was probably the maid and cook's room. To the north of this room 
It's what may have been the coachman's room. It has two doors which open to the front landing and rear landing, respectively. A shared toilet area sits next to it. The other sleeping area is a room in the southwest corner of the third floor. It was reserved for Lizzie's traveling companions. It is designed today to reflect the era between 1911 and 1913 when Trudy Russell, Lizzie's companion, lived at Maplecroft and read with Lizzie in the library, which was directly beneath this room. There was a private sink room with running water in a small alcove with shelves for toiletries. A stained glass window overlooks the lot overlooks the lot where the Kenny house stood. Another window faces French Street. Just outside the door is a landing which with stairs leading directly down to the, to the library and sitting room where Trudy and Lizzie spent their most wonderful moments sharing stories and poetry. The last room on the third floor was used as a clothes press. This room, as did the one on the second on Second Street, has a solitary window and dress hooks around the room. You can still see the hook holes around the entire perimeter. Room for trunks, hats, hat boxes, and satchels was available. Today the room reflects a time when mysticism was at its peak during the Gilded Age of America. The wealthy hired mediums and psychics to hold seances in their parlors and conjure dead loved ones. Table tilting, rattling tambourines, and disembodied voices were sought after entertainment for week-long parties. It was during this time that Edgar Casey and the likes of Houdini made names for themselves. The cellar at Maplecroft is eerily reminiscent of the Second Street. Or Second Street. Here we find the barred windows so prevalent during that era. The brick is whitewashed and there are separate rooms. A large zinc-lined double sink rests against the wall where the laundry was done. A larger setup than Bridget probably had. There is a bath area with a clawfoot tub, toilet, and water tank. A door leads to the outside backyard, reflecting the boarding house's layout. A coal chute was used so the delivery man could shovel coal into it from the outside. The maid could then lift a tash and take what she needed from inside. A story exists that Lizzie would leave a piece of chocolate cake and a glass of milk for the delivery man, who would enter the cellar through the back door, eat his cake, and take his payment from a shadowy figure on the back stairs. Lizzie was known for her kindness to the lower class. The basement currently sports original windows, spindles, and other wonderful items waiting to be restored. The outside front piazza was originally open and wrapped, and wrapped the south and west side of the house. The current owner has lovingly left the, left the segment of the siding here to show the original color of the home when Lizzie owned it and, and its transformation through the ages. The garage. In 1911, Lizzie con contracted for a garage to be built at the back of the lot where the Kenny house once stood. It has double doors and white, and white columns, looking more like a summer cottage than a garage for her two cars. The floor has a trap door that may have been used to facilitate oil changes. An antique gas pump stands in one corner of the large open area. Her original plan was to build it in the lot the back in to the excuse me, her original plan was to build it in in the lot to the back and west of her home that she shared with the Swifts next door. The contract made with her, however, was that the shared property was to remain park-like with no structures built upon it. To retaliate, Lizzie built a 10-foot high latticework fence that blocked the light into the Swifts' front room and entry. It was one of the several spite fences she would erect. The original smaller wrought iron fences outlining her property boundaries are still there today. Replacing Maggie. If Lizzie and Emma needed one more stamp of authority to underscore their own women, to underscore they were their own women, with their own rules and household, it came with the interview of interviewing of acceptable servants to run their French Street home, a maid of old work, a cook, and a handyman, who also doubled as a groomsman, were typically typically required. Other homes on the hill might have had a might have a governess, butler, and nurse on staff, but for the two sisters, their needs were few. There were employment offices in Fall River, to whom one could turn for employees. Bridget Sullivan mentioned she had gone through Mrs. Mary A. Kenny, to find work, and it may be, and it may be to her the sisters turned. 
The servants of the mid-1890s were typically paid 2 to $5 a week. They were given an evening off each week and every other Sunday. They rose before their employer. <clears throat> they rose before their employers and were often still doing some mending or ironing after the rest of the house was in bed. A popular pastime, these hardworking individuals was to gather around the kitchen table at each other's places of employment, sip a cup of tea, and exchange gossip, usually concerning their employer's habits and pastimes. This was a tradition in which Lizzie would soon use her advantage. Use her advantage. We do not know if Emma brought with them the two domestics she hired at Second Street, while Lizzie was in jail for almost a year. By 1900, the census showed 29-year-old Annie E. Smith from Massachusetts living in the house as a maid. Interestingly, Alfred C. Johnson, the hapless farmhand from Swansea that may have indirectly been poisoned by Lizzie in her 1892 attempt to kill her parents, became the Borden sisters' first groomsman when they moved into French Street, when they moved on to French Street. Alfred later married and left their employee. Employee. During the time he worked for Lizzie and Emma, he lived on the third floor of their new home. And Lizzie hired him out of a sense of guilt, or did it go farther? Perhaps the farmhand had approached her with secret knowledge of seeing her about the lower farmhouse that Sunday morning. And, of course, it could be Lizzie just trying to help someone who had worked for her father. Replacing Alfred in 1900 was a young man by the name of Joseph H. Titterow, a recognized ladies' man. At 37 years of age, he was only four years Lizzie's senior and came from nearby Rhode Island. The sisters had broken from the norm of hiring Irish immigrants and other foreign domestics, at least for now. In 1903, they hired Hannah Bolster Nelson, a 32-year-old immigrant from Sweden. It may be that Alfred Johnson, being Swedish himself, recommended her. She was newly single. After her short marriage to Samuel Pearson ended, Hannah took back her maiden name of Nelson and sought employment in Fall River, <clears throat> where she found herself knocking on the door of 7 French Street. She would become one of Lizzie's stronger attachments. Freedom. As Lizzie Borden went about her days, decorating her home and ordering books and knickknacks by the dozens, the sense of freedom she felt was intoxicating. There would be no more jail matrons to watch her every move, no police officers going through her private things, and no limited space. She was free. The only cage that still surrounded her was the ever-present media, the Fall River Globe. Lizzie's nemesis insisted on rehashing the murders in morbid headlines on the anniversary of the warden's death each year. Her presence, once recognized, was reported in each city she visited. In October of 1893, Lizzie, joined by her good friend, Reverend Buck's daughter, Alice and Caroline Borden, Lizzie's cousin, headed off to Chicago to see the Columbian Exposition, or more commonly known as the World's Fair. Why Emma did not go along is unknown. The fair boasted the central court of white stucco buildings called the White City. It was historically lit with a new invention called electricity, courtesy of Nikola Testa and George Westinghouse, Jr. The crowds gasped as the night sky was filled with thousands of lights reflecting in the canals and, and lagoons of the courtyard. It was a momentous occasion for the country. The Louisiana Purchase Exposition, informally known as the St. Louis World's Fair, would not happen until 1904, where it too showcased an electric backdrop. But 27,300,000 visitors spread across 690 acres of attractions, Lizzie could finally lose herself and find some glimpse of anonymity. The buildings may have reminded her of her grand tour of Europe and happier days. Although Lizzie traveled alone under an assumed name, the Fall River papers were never far behind her. The Fall River Daily Globe on October 3rd, 1893, reported Lizzie as having been doing the World's Fair. Lizzie, no doubt, had a small depth of gratitude to the artist who peppered her image across the daily rags as her trials dragged on. With newspaper photography in its infancy, the tabloids relied on illustrations, none of which were flattering or resembled her all that much. Another trip was taken the following summer, this time with Emma in tow. Phoebe Bowen, wife of Dr. Seabury Bowen, the flustered neighbor of the Bordens who testified at Lizzie's legal proceedings, also joined Lizzie on the trip to Niagara Falls. It was dutifully reported in the Fall River Evening News column. Our folks and other folks. Mrs. Dr. S. W. Bowen and Mrs. Lizzie and Emma L. Borden have gone to Niagara Falls for a brief outing. 
as Lizzie and Emma tried to reorder their lives into something that resembled normalcy. The stain of, of a double murder case was never really cleansed. The curious continued to make their way along the sidewalk outside the steps of Senator French Street, some boldly ringing at the front door. Annie Lindsay, E. Brigham, and her sister Mariella had been friends with Lizzie since her childhood. They had been her neighbors long ago on Ferry Street, both growing up to become strong, independent women who married well. Annie would come to would come to own several mansions and one day be presented to the Queen of England. It is to her Lizzie often wrote, and we get a glimpse of the ongoing circus that surrounded the acquitted murder suspect. My dear Annie, a gentleman called Friday and left his card saying he was a friend of yours. If Emma had been home, I would have sent her down first to see if it was all right. But as she was out of town, I declined to go down for fear it was a made-up story as he had no line from you. Governor Robinson insists on my doing this for fear of reporters. Three times the past month, people have come saying Mrs. Mary Livermore sent them. I did not see them and have found out later she had sent no one. I am very, very sorry if he is your friend and hope you will tell him why I could not come down. Your friends are welcome when I am sure, and I, your friends are welcome when I am sure, and I dislike to be discourteous to anyone. If he ever cares to come again, I shall receive him with pleasure. So please let me know if he is your friend, and I will remember. Ella, Mary Ella, okay, Ella, Mary Ella, Annie's sister, and Lizzie's good friend, who stood by her throughout the trials, was in this morning looking bright and rosy. Now I, I wish you lived here. I have so few friends in Fall River. Yours with love, L.A. Borden. Mrs. William Lindley Jr., otherwise known as Annie, had moved to Boston into an elaborate mansion where she was renowned for hosting parties attended by the socialites of that city. Lizzie is never mentioned among the guest list for the galas or the simple dinner gatherings. She may have gone and wished not to be mentioned for fear the papers would report on it and cause her dear friend unwelcome, unwelcome celebrity. Or Annie and Lizzie may have quietly admitted her attendance at any social function would bring unwanted attention, and thus she stayed home. It was clear from her letters she was a very lonely woman. woman. All right, I'm going to stop there. <clears throat> um, so at least we're getting a glimpse into how Lizzie's life was after the murders, you know, buying the house and stuff. And it looks like we got two hours and, hang on a second, 16 minutes left of the book. So it looks like we're going to finish off in the next couple Sundays. So we're getting closer. But, uh, yeah, so we got a glimpse into Lizzie's life post-trial. So next week we'll continue. And, uh, yeah, interesting. Interesting how the author goes into that, you know, extensive description of the house they bought. Very, very interesting indeed. Makes me envious some of the stuff she had. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming today. Tomorrow we'll be here. We'll be back at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And Linda Zimmerman is going to be with us talking about animal intuition and how animals react to UFOs and aliens. So that should be an interesting conversation. And I want to remind everybody about the two classes. There's a psych, psychic development class one and a psychic development class two. Uh, one, uh, the... The Psychic Development Class 1 will be on Saturday, September 3rd at 5 p.m. Pacific. And the Psychic Development Class 2 will be on Saturday, September 10th at 5 p.m. Pacific. And uh, if you guys are interested in that, check out the California Haunts Meetup page, California Haunts Criminal Investigation Team Meetup, and sign up, uh, become a member of the meetup. It's all free. And you can check out the classes from there. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here. You guys have done really good getting the word out. I mean, I mean, things are really, really starting to go up the numbers, and I really appreciate it. I really do. I, and I appreciate each and every one of you, you know, because you're here day in and day out with me, putting up with my fumbles and my <laughs> other things. So I, I really appreciate it. If you have the chance to subscribe to our YouTube page, go, go ahead and do so. There, if you look down at the, I think the right-hand corner, there's a little ghost with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. And you click on that, it'll subscribe you to YouTube. And you can, you know, over there, if you've missed some of the Lizzie Borden chapters, because we've read this from the beginning, you know, pre-murder, murder, post-murder, post -murder, you, can, you can see all that, and uh, you can check all that out, because it's all over there on the YouTube page, all right, along with other stories. 
you know, it's not just all about uh, paranormal with this show, all right? So I think there's a little, there's something there for everybody. Um, you see that uh, ticker running at the bottom of the page? Well, that's because uh, California Haunts doesn't take any money to do any investigations or anything like that. So uh, I own the company, I own it, and everything comes out of my pocket. So if a computer breaks, uh, we got to pay our internet bill, you know, we got to pay all the different little bills that go along with the show. If something, equipment breaks, it comes out of my pocket. And if I, if you could help me out a little bit, you know, because I want to keep this thing going, keep these really cool guests coming, you know, uh, and keep reading Sundays and keep and keep the real good uh, people coming in to talk to me and talk to you and inform you about stuff that's going on, that would be great. You can do that at... Uh, paypal.me at california haunts or venmo and then just type in california haunts that would be great and i would really appreciate it but anyway i will see you guys let me get this set up here as i lean forward i will see you guys tomorrow at 6 30 p.m pacific and let's see have a good rest of your sunday